0: Amen. Well, if you've been around uh, the summer, you know that we are in the midst of our teaching series on the Ten Commandments, a, uh, a portion of the Bible that has been uh, much uh, gone over, if, again, if you've been around Christian or Jewish circles. And so we have been trying to be a little bit more specific as we look at these Ten Commandments to get a better understanding about what they teach us about God, what they teach us about God. And so today we're looking at the seventh commandment. Now, I want to remind you that, again, if you're uh, new here today, you can always go to Abbenhope.org and catch up on our series, either in video or on our audio podcast. Last week's message, a great one, we had an ADA from New York, our head elder Derek Linton, talk about murder. I thought that was like the greatest thing, someone who deals with murder every day to teach us a little bit about uh, murder in the Bible. And so you can go back and get Derek's message and others at adventhope.org. So our subject today is that the provocative one of adultery. And uh, before we go uh, too far on this, we need to spend a little bit of time just being thoughtful about uh, this word adultery. So in the uh, in the ancient Near East, the, uh, the attitude toward uh, adultery was... Uh, was rather discreet in fact there was a euphemism and this is from extra biblical sources so this is not from the bible but we know that uh, in the culture that uh, existed at the time that the ten commandments was given to israel that adultery was uh, was referred to as the great sin it was a euphemism the great sin and so the uh, hebrew term which we find in exodus chapter 20 verse 14 which is really only just uh, one word na'afa it meant literally to commit adultery. And uh, it's used throughout the Old Testament with regard to both men and women, though far more frequently with uh, men. And there's an analogy between the is an aphah and idol worship throughout the Old uh, Testament. Now, one commentator, Stuart Douglas, uh, says this about this commandment. The commandment does not explicitly condemn premarital sex, postmarital sex, such as one between a widow or a widower, a cohabitation without formal marriage, bestiality, incest, or any other sexual-related issues. Those are dealt with in other places in the Bible, he says. But th- that this commandment is directly related to adultery between two people who are in a committed uh, marriage relationship. And so with that in, in mind, I know many of you here are not married And so you may feel like this is not for you today, but let's hope and pray that we can find uh, something in this that is meaningful. And I would suggest to you that uh, we can. So bear with us uh, as we think about this. So again, we're focusing on what the commandments and specifically what this commandment of adultery teaches us about God and who God is. And so I would propose three things. Now, there are many more. You know I like to pick the number three because it's a beautiful number and uh, easy for us to deal with. So three things about the commandment that teach us about who God is. First of all, God cares about sex. God cares about sex, uh, despite uh, Christians or uh, Christianity's unusual history uh, or conflicted history. Let's say with the topic of uh, sex. Apparently, God thinks that sex is so important that He would uh, interject into the Bible. Uh, entire books or at least one entire book that's really dealing with the, the, the intimate sex relationship in the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. So Christianity, though, has had this conflicted relationship with sex. Let me read uh, to you from author Philip O'Reichen, who talks a little bit about the history of Christianity and sex. He says this, Prior to the Reformation, the Church generally regarded sex, even within marriage, as a necessary evil. Tertullian regarded the extinction of the human race as preferable to procreation. It would be better if if the human race just stopped existing than for people to have enjoyable sex. These are the early church uh, fathers. Uh, Ambrose said that married couples ought to be ashamed of their sexuality. Augustine, the great church father Augustine, was willing to admit that intercourse might be lawful, but taught that Sexual passion was always a sin. Uh, this went so far to the, the many kind of hilarious uh, uh, stories about how this was implied. But my favorite was the teaching that uh, uh, men and women should, I mean, if they had to have sex, they had to have sex, but don't take off your clothes because you wouldn't want to inspire passionate thoughts while it was happening. Are guys, are we okay today? going to be good? Let's just breathe for a moment. Reichen, the author, continues, many priests counseled couples to abstain from sex altogether. The Catholic Church gradually began to prohibit sex on certain holy days so that by the time of Martin Luther, the list had grown to 183 days a year when a couple could not have sex. 183 days a year (laughs) you could not have sex. Uh, I love Reichen's next comment after that. He says, thank God for the Reformation. God cares about sex, that's good news. He cares about sex. There's an entire book of the Bible that really, there's no other good reason for it being there than to promote the idea of healthy, intimate relationship between uh, two people, and so that's good news. Secondly, God cares about the marriage commitment. That's without question uh, part of this. God is concerned about the marriage uh, relationship. Uh, sex is certainly related to the mar- marriage commitment, In fact, you can make the case it's the most intimate expression of that uh, commitment. And so the explanation of adultery uh, throughout the Bible. So in the commandment, it's really just this one word, no adultery. Uh, But as you continue to read through the rest of the law, there's a little bit more expansion on specifically what adultery meant. In Leviticus chapter 18, verse 20, we read uh, this. Don't have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her in Deuteronomy chapter 23 22 verse 23 if a man happens to meet uh, in a town a virgin pledged to be married to another and sleeps with her uh, you shall take both of them out of the town gate and stone them now which which is a whole kind of another field that we could talk about at another time but we get this this impression that God takes this very seriously specifically Specifically, two people who are married to other people, having relations with their 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 spouse, not not their spouse, people outside of that marriage commitment. So, what's interesting specifically about Deuteronomy chapter 22 is that it's even related to people who are uh, engaged. So, this man and this woman apparently who was only engaged that this this was part of the the commitment. So, God apparently takes this incredibly uh, seriously, God cares about the marriage uh, commitment. And God believes that faithfulness to this covenant relationship is, is related to humanity's ability to be faithful to him. I love Proverbs chapter 5 in the context of adultery. It says this, Proverbs chapter 5, verse 15. And this is counsel. And I realize that a lot of this is kind of gender-specific toward men, but we recognize that much of the Bible and even Jesus' own teaching, he's talking with men, so this certainly relates not just to, to men, but women as well. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 15, Drink water from your own cistern. Um, <laughs> you get that, right? <laughs> okay. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets? <laughs> springs overflow in the You guys with me here? Springs overflowing in the streets. Uh, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours and yours alone, never to be shared among strangers. Good advice from Proverbs. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths." How about some proverbs? You didn't think you were going to hear bosoms or sex or any of those words today. I'm glad that we can talk about this together, right? We're family. We were doing okay this morning. I know. I realize that there are children among us, so we're gonna. That was as explicit as it was that we're gonna get today. Okay. <laughs> God is into the marriage uh, commitment. All right. Thirdly, uh, God sees adultery between humans as an analogy of idol worship uh, throughout the Bible, specifically the Old Testament. Uh, the this this idea of unfaithfulness to one's uh, mate is related to idol worship. And again, we get the idea here that, again, God cares about commitment, but that the commitment that a person makes to another person is also related to their commitment that they make to uh, God, and that God sees these commitments as being linked. And so uh, God sees adultery between humans as... Being an analogy of idol worship, which we know was a prominent problem throughout the the story of Israel, but continues to be a problem with us today. Idols are a problem uh, for us. So now that we kind of understand, you know, the language, idolatry, then this this word don't don't do it, don't commit adultery. Um, I think understanding the idea and recognizing what it means and what it means to, to God can can give us a, a sense of, of wholeness, but also an understanding that uh, that is good. We want to have a good idea of what God means when He says um, that we should not commit adultery. There is a problem, though. There is a problem, though. About 1,500 years after the those who had just come out of Egypt were given the the Ten Commandments, reintroduced to the idea of God's uh, moral law, Jesus comes on the scene. And famously, in Matthew chapter 5, he preaches uh, one of his most prominent sermons. And in that sermon, he talks about many of the Ten Commandments, including this, the seventh commandment. And we find uh, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, saying this. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a person lustfully has already committed adultery with them in their heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you, for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Okay, so the, the people of the day, they were very familiar with the Ten Commandments. So when Jesus said, you have heard it said you should not commit adultery, they could have all recited that with him. They knew that. They were incredibly familiar with that idea of not committing adultery. But Jesus seems to take things to a whole nother level. That this, this issue of adultery is not just something that happens in an action between two people. It's something that starts in the heart and in the mind. Jesus presents here a, a threefold structure as he is uh, exposing the commandments. And this is not the only commandment he, does, he uses this threefold structure on. So firstly, in this structure, he states the command as it stands. You have heard it said. And secondly, he diagnoses the, the, the vicious cycle, that the, the commandment is actually about things that are, are deeper and things that are internal, and the corruption and our inability to, to really be effective in, in, in keeping these commands. And then thirdly, he introduces what theologians, uh, Gushy and Stassen, in their kind of monumental landmark book, Kingdom Ethics, called The Transforming Initiative. The Transforming in, in, in Initiative. So here's how it goes. So part one is, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. That's Jesus reiterating what everybody already knew. And then, but then he, he diagnoses the real problem. I tell you that anyone who looks at a person lustfully has already committed adultery with them in their heart now he's really getting down to do a little surgery on the nature of a of a, of a human being right it's not just about the action it's about what's going on in the heart and the mind and then he gives what what Stassen and gushi call the transforming initiative this is well what do you do all right so what if you what do you do if you're having internal issues how do you take care of this and again this commandment is not the only one that he does this that jesus uses as this transforming initiative you can see if you read In Matthew chapter 5 and 6, the other ones that he works on this. So here's the transforming initiative. This is how we're going to practically take care of this problem of lust in our hearts. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So apparently, Jesus' ethical strategy here in Matthew chapter 5 in dealing with this issue of adultery is to eliminate anything in your experience, including body parts, that would cause you to look on a person lustfully. Now, most people say Jesus was being hyperbolic here and, you know, he wasn't really anticipating that anyone would cut things off. But the statement is still there, hyperbolic or not, right? Now, it's here where Bible students often stop. They say to themselves, okay, Jesus has told us what we're supposed to do. adultery or whatever other commandment applies, right? Adultery or, or coveting or, or, or being dishonest. That's bad. And, and, and it's rooted in something deeper than what we may first have thought. So then Jesus gives this practical advice. In this case, you know, if there's something, get rid of it. And so Bible students say, you know, I've got to start evaluating my life and I've got to start getting rid of things. And so we start uh, cutting out things and Cutting out more and more, more things, removing uh, uh, temptations. And then we'll go even further and start telling other people the, the things that they need to start removing so that we won't be tempted. You've heard this. I know, I know that uh, those of you who are here today who are women have heard this often. You know, You need to stop wearing this so that men won't be tempted. Have you ever heard that before? If your self control is based on what other people are wearing, you have the problem, not the other person. You guys with me here? Removing temptations doesn't solve the problem. That's the reality. Blind people can still lust, right? You don't need your hands to commit adultery. I mean, that's what Jesus said take the eye out, you're lusting. Cut off the hand! The reality is that Jesus' teaching is depressing. Don't get me wrong. People love Jesus' teaching. I love Jesus' teaching. I've spent a good portion of my life dedicated to talking about and engaging with Jesus' teaching. But the, the reality is that Jesus' teaching, particularly here, is depressing. And yet people love Jesus' teaching. You know who loves Jesus' teaching? Many atheists. I found this this week. I was doing some study in preparation for today, and I read two uh, editorials by, by some, some, I'm sure, good, lovely atheist people who just are like, God doesn't exist. These are not agnostic to the atheists. And, uh, but you know what they were doing? They were loving on the Sermon on the Mount. Why? Because the Sermon on the Mount is great ethics. I mean, it is good teaching that most people, I mean, unless you, you know, you're just, you don't, you don't have an ethical or moral stand. Most people, they read Jesus' teaching Certainly in the Sermon on the Mount are like, this is, this is good. I mean, most people in the world, don't get me wrong, most people would say adultery is not great. Listen, extra biblical sources that existed before what we read in, in the Bible, or certainly around that time, say that people in the culture at large thought of adultery as the great sin. That, the idea that adultery was problematic existed outside and, be, and, and before what we read written in the Bible. You guys with me here? Jesus' teaching alone can be uh, depressing. Man, cut off my arm, take out my eyeball, and yet even that doesn't work to solve the problem of a really honest... Listen, good ethical teaching has been around for thousands of years. Jesus wasn't the first to come with good ethical teaching. You know that. There are great moral and philosophical teachers that have existed since time began. And they all promoted actions that we should be doing to get our act together. The Ten Commandments was not the first to say that adultery was a problem. The culture at large believed, or many believed, that adultery was the great sin. So if ethical and moral teaching, specifically Jesus' ethical and moral teaching, doesn't solve humanity's problems, what hope do we have? And I thought if I just read more about what Jesus said and just did what Jesus told us to do, I'd be in good shape. But you know that doesn't work. Why? Because you, many of you, have read what Jesus said to do and you know what you do? You don't do it. Or you try to do it and even that doesn't solve the issues. So what hope do we have? Well, I would suggest to you there's good news today. That the power of the gospel is not found in Jesus' teaching alone. The power of the gospel is found in Jesus' action. The God who has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Ethics are one thing, what we should do, but the problem is the power to follow through with ethics. And so we can take heart. There, There has been one who followed through. That Jesus himself, he kept his own ethics. Even when we... Uh, could not. And so the good news of the gospel is not what we should be doing, but what God has done in Jesus. When Jesus was uh, was teaching there on that mountain, he'd also been recently proclaiming this idea, the kingdom of God is near to you. The kingdom of God is is near to you. It's, 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 it's near and embodied in Jesus' own experience, but, the, but the, there's also a movement that is is, is coming. The kingdom of God is, is near to you. It's not until he's dying on the cross where he can say, it is finished. On the cross, he can say, it is a finish. In one sense, his, 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 his ministry, his teaching work is coming to a completion on the cross. It is a finished. The implication is pretty uh, clear. The ethics and moral teaching of Jesus are insufficient. Of even Jesus are insufficient to heal the deep wounds that you and I have. Good advice isn't going to do it for us. The world is full, even today, of more good advice than humans have ever had in human history. Do you know how much good advice there is in the world? We've talked about this a hundred times before. You can go onto the internet. You can go to Barnes and Noble. You know how much good information and, 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 and good advice that you can get. The problem is that most of us, for most of us, the problem is that not that we don't know. Oh, I wish I had known that adultery was a problem. Bad excuse. It's the power. What we're missing in our experience is the power to do what we know we're supposed to do. The Apostle Paul, the great communicator about this good news and about what really happened when Jesus came and lived and died... Said this in First Corinthians chapter one and verse 18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. If you if you're just if you're if you're looking for the next bit of really good advice or good moral teaching and and you feel like if I just grasp onto that and then I'm gonna be able to take that next step in my in my growth as a person or as a as a human or even as a community. The idea of the cross is foolishness. But he goes on to say, "But to those who us are in the process right now of being saved, it's the power of God." The implication is clear: Ethics and morality. Even those ethics of Jesus alone are not going to do it. We as people need power. And that power comes from what God has done through Jesus when Jesus died on the cross. It's that unique event in human history that has never happened before or since God became man and died on our behalf. And we read in Second Corinthians chapter five verse 21, these words, "God made him who had no sin." who lived an ethical and moral life. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. There is power in what God has done on our behalf through Jesus. And you and I and every single person on the planet have access to this power. Power that can transform and change us and help us to become come people who are ethical and moral and who do the right thing. But if we're trying to do it on our own, we are going to come up short every single time. It is finished, Jesus Jesus said on the cross. And Paul goes further and says, look, Jesus dying wasn't enough. He said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins, but thank God Christ has been raised, and we have hope because, because he's been raised, because he's died, you and I have access to something that we've never had before. As individuals, in this, as a human race, we have access to God's power. Jesus' last words in his, in his last human time with his disciples was this. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my Father has promised to give to you. Which you've heard me speak about before. John. You know John. That guy you were following before me. John baptized with water. He told you what you should do. And how you should live. And he told you to repent. And he told you to get it together. But in a few days you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that's a whole different ball game. He says this you will receive a power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses of this power to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When you embrace God's work through Jesus on your behalf, God is enabled to do in you what you cannot do for yourself. And he gives you power through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's mysterious. It's, it's at some level kind of unexplainable, and that's why Paul has to say this is foolishness to a lot of people. Because they're looking at ethics and morality and just saying, hey, get your act together by following these instructions. And, but that hasn't worked. Look at humanity. We're as broken as we've ever been before in human history. I mean, you would think in the age of information, we would figure it out how to get ourselves together. We're not doing a very good job. We can't even decide whether global warming is real or you know what, what what's going on with the state of the world or who should be killing who or not killing we can't make these decisions as a human human race we're not going to fix this thing on our own we need things something outside of ourselves and the good news of the gospel is that God has provided something outside of ourselves that he wants to work in us as individuals but also in us as a community to be transformative in this world so that we can be the witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the, end of the ends of the earth. Some of you looked at me funny when I said we couldn't decide about global warming. You understand what I, I mean. All, all of our scientist friends have decided, right? I should have said some people haven't decided about global warming. The point being is we're a mess. We're a mess. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth because God wants to work in us as individuals and as a community to transform us and to make us new and to to, to fulfill the ethics of Jesus, but not on our own because we're not going to do it on our own. God working in us to make us new. God has power that we've never had on our own. And he makes that available to everyone. Amen.